0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Doug Weaver, immediate past president of the American College of Cardiology. For patients undergoing major non-cardiac surgery, perioperative management focuses on recognition and treatment of cardiac risk factors and disease. How should medical treatment and testing factor into preoperative preparations? Separately, as the general population ages, the typical candidate for surgery will be older. And will this present more surgical challenges? Our guest today is Dr. Don Poldermans, professor of medicine and head of perioperative cardiac care at Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Welcome, Dr. Poldermans.
1: Thanks. It's an honor to be with you.
0: So, Dr. Polmans, what sort of assessment should be undertaken in patients who have a history of heart disease before undergoing non-cardiac surgery?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, and it's a very practical one. Most of the patients who are scheduled nowadays for surgery, as you already have recalled, have high risk for coronary artery disease. So, basically, their medical therapy should be aimed at treatment and prevention of additional cardiac complications for the long term. So, practically spoken, patients with proven coronary artery disease should be treated with a statin, and a beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, USD, and antiplatelet therapy. Given that this is a typical normal therapy for the long-term in those patients as well, there is no reason to withheld those patients this medication prior to surgery. Now, what you want to do with preoperative testing is to find out if you can improve the condition of the patient any further. So typically, you would look for severe left ventricular dysfunction or left main disease because those are the ones that really will have an impact on the pre-operative and postoperative management. Now, for left ventricular dysfunction, actually the risk factor is not so much on the pre-operative, much more on the long term, although the anesthesiologist does appreciate it if you will inform him about left ventricular function at rest. So what we normally do in the Erasmus Medical Center is a careful history of those patients and a good physical examination. And if you're in doubt, we perform a resting echo or, as now commonly done also, is an anti BMP as a risk marker. This is something what you should do typically in your patient at risk going for high-risk surgery. Now, for the detection of coronary artery disease, we recommend patients undergoing high-risk surgery, mainly vascular surgery, to be tested for coronary artery disease if, you, for instance, you have three or more risk factors on board. What we typically take as a risk factor for those patients is elderly age, so over 70. It's a stroke or TA. It's a history of heart failure, angina pectoris, MI, renal dysfunction, so we create an in over 2 mg per deciliter, and diabetes. If you have three or more of those risk factors on board, I think the chances of coronary artery disease is high. And in those patients, we say, okay, medical therapy does improve post outcome. However, we're not sure, and especially the ones with extensive myocardial ischemia, it's important to be informed about extensive coronary artery disease. And in those patients, we perform an exercise test or a scan or a stress echo.
0: So in those patients that have risk factors, you're saying that becomes sort of your first decision point whether you go further in that diagnostic evaluation.
1: Is that correct? Yes. So what we do is we take a careful history, and we go for the risk factors as elderly age, angina, MI, heart failure, stroke, uh, renal dysfunction, and diabetes. Now, one of the pitfalls uh, that is at the moment is what's place of exercise capacity? So a lot of us would first start, say, okay, what's your exercise capacity? And then you usually be informed, oh, I have a good exercise capacity. And if the patient has no risk factors, then you will go along for surgery. However, if the patient has good exercise capacity with risk factors, you will perform additional testing anyhow. So in my opinion, the information of exercise capacity will tell you something about the value, for instance, of angina factors and heart failure. But if a patient has good exercise capacity but still has a lot of risk factors, you will go for additional cardiac screening anyhow. So perhaps the value of exercise capacity is a bit limited, although in the past it used to be very important Nowadays, we feel a little bit less confident. For instance, if a patient has a good exercise capacity with loads of risk factors, we will go for additional testing anyhow.
0: So what would be an example of good exercise capacity?
1: Then you come up with, I think, the activity skill, as they say. In uh, good European languages, you should be able to walk two flights of stairs without any problems. It's difficult to compare that, for instance, if you talk to a Frenchman who lives in Paris, and you say, you should walk two blocks without any problem. He looks at you and says, two blocks, we don't have blocks in Paris. So, (laughs) uh, it's difficult. For the U.S., it's very easy to understand. You should be able to climb two flights of stairs without any problem. But a solid and sound mind is usually more important. So, if the patient can really perform exercise, Okay, you understand what he's doing. He can play a round of golf without any problems. Okay, that's a good exercise capacity. But I usually go for the Duke. I think it's activity score, as you mentioned it.
0: Now, if a patient has known coronary disease, we'll say, I don't know, maybe they had an MI several years ago, but they're totally asymptomatic, they're stable, have a normal exercise capacity, does that patient require any additional testing before non-cardiac surgery?
1: If you talk about a patient with only NMI in a password, let's say on AKG you find an MI, and he has no residual complaints and has a good exercise capacity, then we usually would say it's only one risk factor. And even if he's scheduled for a major surgery, we would say with one risk factor on board, even two risk factors on board, we feel quite confident with a good medical therapy. And as long as the patient is stable, we stabilize him throughout surgery. And in our opinion, he might be cleared for surgery without any additional testing to look for residual ischemia. Because if you're practical, if a patient has an MI and he's treated well, he's stable, and you will find residual ischemia, you will not send him for coronary revascularization because he's a stable candidate and it's unlikely that you will find, for instance, left main with severe ischemia. So from a practical point of view, we always look at the stability of the complaints. As long as the patients are stable and have one or two cardiac risk factors, we feel confident with medical therapy only.
0: Now, I want to clarify your earlier recommendations, and that would be the patient who has no known heart disease but is over age 75 with renal dysfunction.
1: No, we say 70. Sorry to interrupt. We say 70.
0: Over 70. Are those the patients that need more extensive screening no matter that they are asymptomatic?
1: Yeah, so what we say is we go for three or more risk factors. For instance, if a patient is over 70 with diabetes and a previous stroke, and although the patient may not have angina factors, as quite often occurs with patients with diabetes, we would go for additional uh, testing. And you should always keep in mind that people say, okay, I do the testing and I will not perform a coronary revascularization. So if the doctor says, I don't perform coronary revascularization, why should I do testing? It's much more we feel very confident to counsel a patient. We say, okay, this is your problem, and we expect a problem with this type of surgery. For instance, if the patient goes for elective hip surgery and we perform a stress test and we see abundant myocardial ischemia, then we discuss with the patient, okay, you have a hip problem, but you also have abundant myocardial ischemia. What's worthwhile to go on for surgery? And perhaps we should reframe from surgery. So it's not only saying yes or no coronary revascularization, but also to inform the patient more about his prognosis just after surgery and for the long term as well. We tend to have a discussion with cardiologists and saying, okay, I will not perform coronary revascularization. Why do we stress test? And say, no, it's much more. For instance, you can say, I refrain from surgery because it's an elective surgery. Or you can discuss, for instance, with the anesthesiologist that you will try to go for a less cardiac demanding uh, anesthesia procedure or even with a surgeon. So there's much more with a stress test, than just to say yes or no coronary revascularization. The entire management depends on it.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, Radio XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Weaver. Our guest today is Dr. Don Poldermans, professor of medicine and head of perioperative cardiac care at Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam. We're discussing preoperative risk assessment and risk reduction in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery. Now, you mentioned hip surgery. Are there certain surgeries that are higher risk and deserve far more investigation than others?
1: Yes, there are several types of surgery which are demanding for the patient. Now, vascular surgery is well known, with the exception, of course, for carotid surgery. This is, sort of intermediate-risk surgery. So the American Heart and American College have the profile of more than 5% chance of cardiac events, so that's usually vascular surgery or entertheratic surgery with massive fluid shifts. Then you have the intermediate-risk population with 1% to 5% of post cardiac events, usually carotid surgery, abdominal surgery, liver surgery. And then you have the really low-risk surgery, breast surgery, and eye surgery. For instance, the low-risk surgery in cardiac-stable patients, it's not recommended to do any additional testing whatsoever. Just make sure you have identified the risk factors, you've treated the risk factors for the long term. For the intermediate-risk surgery patient, there used to be a debate whether or not to perform additional testing in those patients. Now, there's more and more evidence that as long as the patient is stable and you have treated all the risk factors with aspirin, a beta-logger, statin on board, the patient is quite safe because there's not so much stress during surgery. However, for the high-risk surgery, you may end up in trouble. And then we say we take a careful look at the type of surgery. If the patient has three or more risk factors, we definitely go for additional stress testing. If the patient has no risk factors whatsoever, He's stable. We say okay, he's cleared for surgery with the medical therapy on board. And for one or two risk factors, high-risk surgery, there used to be a long debate. Some of us felt very confident with additional testing. We've shown that it doesn't help so much to do additional testing and delay surgery. So if you would say I'm thinking about coronary vascularization with one or two risk factors going high-risk surgery, it's not recommended. The RF studies from Decrease five and the CARP study do not show an improved outcome of those patients after revascularization. So I think in those patients, it's not worthwhile to go for coronary revasc. However, if you would like to inform your patient more, then I think you have a place for cardiac testing. So there is a place for cardiac testing, especially for three or more risk factors. For one or two risk factors, you can discuss it with your patient. If the patient needs to be informed or wants to be informed, I think that's a good indication to do the test.
0: And what about the patient who you believe is at risk, but really has no known prior heart disease, using beta blockers? Are they protective in the perioperative period?
1: Now, this is a huge debate about the use of beta blockers. Beta blockers have an indication for patients with proven coronary artery disease and heart failure. Now, if you find a patient right to surgery with heart failure or proven coronary artery disease, you know on the long term he will do better with a beta blocker. We are quite practical and saying, okay, there's on the long term an indication, let's about the preoperative period. If you have a patient on chronic beta-blocker therapy prior to surgery, it's a good indication that's safe. Of course, the POISE study showed that acute high-dose beta-blocker prior to surgery is not safe. So we would recommend, if you have time enough prior to surgery to start and initiate beta-blocker, let's say 30 days, then the patient is in stable condition. He's titrated and he's adjusted to the dose. For instance, if you take a look at the POIS study, they treat patients with methoprolol succinate, long-acting methoprolol. The initial dose is about 100 milligram just hours prior to surgery. Then the next step within six hours is an additional 100 milligram, and after 12 to 18 hours, you have an additional 200 milligram. So, in worst-case scenario, you have 400 milligram methoprolol succinate on the first day. Those are patients where beta-blocker naive. Average ACE is 70 years. So it's expected that those patients may suffer from overdosing. So therefore, I would recommend if you want to use a beta blocker, do it carefully, titrate, start low. It's always easier to add some beta blocker during surgery than to try to take it out during surgery because that's, of course, not possible. We recommend a low-dose beta blocker, titrate, treat carefully, and that's, in our opinion, quite safe.
0: Now, what about the patient who's taking aspirin? I mean, all of the surgeons I know, they don't want any of these patients on aspirin when they do their operations. Can you um, tell us about that?
1: The aspirin is an important issue, and of course, if you talk about period of myocardial infarctions, if you look at fatal outcome, the fatal MIs are about 50% is plaque rupture and the other 50% is a supply demand mismatch. Now, for the plaque rupture, of course, statins and aspirin are very useful. Also, from retrospective studies shown that aspirin a discontinuation increases the risk of postoperative cardiac events. So it's our recommendation in Europe at the moment to continue aspirin unless there's a strong contraindication not to do so. So, for instance, if you have a neurosurgeon who wants to do brain surgery and he cannot control the bleeding in the brain, then, of course, you say, okay, it's better to interrupt the aspirin. But the vast majority of our patients will go for surgery with aspirin on board. We do not interrupt it routinely. It's an exception.
0: So for the knee surgeries, the hip surgeries, the GI surgeries?
1: We all continue. You might have a problem if you, for instance, want to do epidural anesthesia and patients are on low molecular heparin and aspirin. That's something you should discuss with the anesthesiologist. An interruption of an aspirin does put your patient at harm because there's an increased incidence of cardiac events. It's known from retrospective studies. I know there's only one prospective study ongoing looking at aspirin effect, but it's not completed yet. So from retrospective data, it's recommended to continue aspirin, and the guidelines usually say, if you can continue aspirin, please do so. So discuss with your surgeon and anesthesiologist if you can continue aspirin and try to explain to him or her that it does something good to continue aspirin.
0: We have been talking with Dr. Don Poldermans about preoperative risk assessment and risk reduction. Dr. Poldermans, thank you for being our guest today. My pleasure. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.